Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. We are coming to you this week from both the nation's capital and from Cleveland, Ohio, the host city of the Republican National Convention, where amid all the chaos, there's been one consistent refrain from the gathered delegates that Hillary Clinton should be locked up. Interestingly enough, not every party elder has been enthusiastic about the Hillary for prison meme, and there's a good reason why. It originates well outside the party with the Alex Jones slash Infowars slash conspiracy theory set who have been ubiquitous on the streets of Cleveland this week. We catch up with the agitators who have put their stamp for better or for worse on the campaign rhetoric. We'll also hear from California Democratic Representative Javier Becerra for his thoughts on the Republican message. The other big issue in Cleveland has been the forging of party unity, a goal of every convention that's proven to be difficult to bring about in Cleveland. Wednesday night, those efforts took a big hit after Texas Senator Ted Cruz took the stage, refused to endorse Donald Trump, and was greeted with a chorus of recriminations from the audience. We'll catch up with some of the delegates who witnessed the conflagration on Wednesday. Meanwhile, as America watches the conventions unfold across the Atlantic, democratic norms in Turkey have been gravely imperiled after an attempted coup d'etat to oust President Recep Tayyip Erdogan failed to do so, clearing the way for Erdogan to accelerate the entrenchment of his autocratic regime through a brutal countering crackdown. We'll discuss what the road ahead looks like for this scarred nation. Finally, next week is the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. And by the time we get there, Hillary Clinton will have decided who will serve as her running mate in 2016. We'll talk about who she might choose and what signal it might send to the Democratic base. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Laura Barone Lopez, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Mike McAuliffe. And here's what happened first. I love Cleveland. I love Ohio. It's great to be here. Thank you, everybody. That's Donald Trump doing his sound check at the Quicken Loans Arena on Thursday morning, where we went to find out what delegates to the Republican National Convention had to say about Ted Cruz's epic burn of the Donald on Wednesday night. If you love our country and love your children as much as I know that you do, stand and speak and vote your conscience, vote for candidates up and down the ticket who you trust to defend our freedom and to be faithful to the Constitution. This is Pete King, a Republican congressman from New York. Last, last night, the American people had the opportunity to see the real Ted Cruz. He's a liar. He's a fraud. He's narcissistic. He disqualified himself from ever being considered as a candidate for president. Uh, what he did was disgraceful. I wasn't surprised. I, I wasn't surprised, but I was, that even he would go that far. Listen, if you're going to accept from Donald Trump an invitation to a primetime television address, you don't screw around like he did. He's just, again, totally self-centered. Now, what he said the next morning was that, you know, I, Donald Trump himself broke the pledge we'd made when he attacked my family. Did you, you're not impressed at all by the fact that he's uh, no. putting his own honor ahead no, of if politics? If his honor is so strong, then he should have stayed away from the convention. He should have stayed, stayed back in Texas. 
but what did, you, what did you think of what Trump had said in the past about, you know, we're going to spill the beans on Heidi and here's an ugly picture of Heidi on Twitter? Yeah, you know, whatever was said in the past is between the two of them. If he felt that strongly about it, he shouldn't have been there. I mean, Ted Cruz has done, uh, I've seen what he's done in Washington, too. I have no use for the guy. So uh, it's, it's hard to feel too sorry for Ted Cruz. This is Ginger Howard, a delegate from Georgia. It was very interesting on the floor because you heard all kinds of gasp from people. They were waiting and thinking, surely he is about to endorse. And from what I gathered later when we all powwowed to talk about what happened, people were watching the teleprompter that were close to it and could see that that wasn't going to happen. And they started booing. And it was a little awkward for everybody. And you could tell it was awkward for Ted Cruz a little bit. It was an awkward moment. And did you partake of the boos? I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and us Southern girls are taught that we don't boo. So, no, I did not boo. I but don't like that. I gather that you did not approve of him right. going out on stage without endorsing the nominee. Well, I don't think he necessarily had to endorse him, but what he could have said, we all need to get together, let's unify. He didn't have to use the word endorse, Uh but at least give an olive branch that I am going to do everything I can to help Donald Trump win the election. So when he said, vote your conscience, that made it really clear. To to me, that's, I took it as vote your conscience. Um, Did you think it was strange that the RNC had sent out his speech to reporters, you know, like an hour or two prior to him going on stage and that it still happened as if in slow motion? (laughs) Well, what were they going to do at that point? Say, you can't speak, we're pulling you from the stage. That that would have been a debacle. Yeah. What were they going to do? I guess they could have got a really long cane (laughs) and and grabbed him by the neck. (laughs) So uh, uh, where does this leave you with Ted Cruz? Did you like him before? I was also, I was originally a Rick Perry fan, and uh-huh. so Rick is from Texas, and I know he endorsed Ted Cruz, but I voted for Marco Rubio. And so, but now Ted Cruz clearly is positioning himself for a run in 2020. Do you think this is going to spoil some of uh, his support, or will it help him? I don't think it will help him at all, because you need to unify the party behind the nominee. The people voted, even if he wasn't your first choice, second choice, third choice, or even 16th choice. Ultimately, the people have spoken, and we that's the process. That's the beauty of the process. And I told someone the other day, it's more than just one person. Our platform is so important. The Supreme Court is so important. And we have to remember that there's more than just one about a person. It's about our party. It's about the principles that we stand for. And that, to me, is so important. And what is the saddest thing is, your question to me and every other question that I've gotten from reporters is, what did you think about Ted Cruz? Not one person has said, what did you think about Mike Pence? How did he do? He did an amazing job. I think he is going to be such an addition to this ticket. He's conservative. He is solid. He has executive experience, and he has legislative experience. So that's what I want to be talking about. I don't want to be talking about Ted Cruz. And for that reason, I'm very disappointed that Ted Cruz did what he did. And this is Christian Burley a delegate from the District of Columbia who told us there was some funny business with what the convention did to D.C. delegates. Uh, it's hard to explain. It gave me a headache. Uh, at our primary, we had uh, a overwhelming turnout uh, of Republican voters who stood in line for hours, uh, a lot of that in the rain, uh, to cast their votes for uh uh, Senator Rubio and Governor Kasich. Uh, after that, uh, all 19 of our delegates were 
pledged to, to or pledged almost evenly to Senator Rubio and Governor Kasich. Uh, we are firm believers that they are qualified candidates for president. Uh, but what happened is we have two conflicting rules. One of the rules that was written for us by the RNC says that if one candidate is nominated, you have to vote for that candidate. That's Lorraine's previous line. Uh, another rule that was uh, added by our state committee and local leaders said that delegates are bound to whom was the choice of the voters. Yeah. We all went here to be the voice of D.C. Republican voters. That's why we said we were duty-bound uh, duty uh, to Senator Rubio and Governor Kasich. But I guess in RNC English, Rubio Kasich means Donald Trump. And right now you are wearing a hashtag never Trump button. So I guess you're not too happy about I this. I am not happy at all. I was furious. Uh, I, I've never been an activist, but I, uh, I shouted and I screamed uh, that the RNC really did a huge disservice uh, to the delegates uh, and to the D.C. voters. I wonder if you're having mixed feelings right now about Ted Cruz for his epic burn. Uh, (laughs) You know, you don't seem like a Ted Cruz kind of guy. I guess sometimes the the enemy is my friend. Uh, (laughs) I'm not a Ted Cruz guy. I don't agree with him on the vast majority, well, on a large number of uh, issues that he has uh, staked out. Uh, He's also somebody who is not supported by D.C. Republicans. All right, Christian Burley, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks for having me here. 
you had a, uh, it began with a pastor calling Democrats enemies. You had people on the podium saying Hillary should go to jail. Uh, you had Ben Carson hauling out Lucifer yes. yesterday. Uh, so I assume that's what you're talking about when you say you have a hard time imagining people finding a place in yeah. this event. Uh, I, I know that some of the Republicans took to the podium and talked about uniting the party, uniting the country. I, I didn't hear anything after those uh, super superficial words to demonstrate that there was really going to be an effort to, to unite America. I saw things that would divide America. Uh, as the son of immigrants, that first day, Monday, brought chills because the way they portrayed immigrants, um, I found offensive. But more than that, I think it did such a uh, disservice to people like my parents who worked so hard. My dad got to the sixth grade. My mother didn't come to this country till she married my father when she was 18 and came from Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico. They work very hard. I'm the first in my family to get a, you know, a, a bachelor degree. And for these speakers to just lump everyone who's of immigrant background in one way, saying rapists, killers, and the rest, I think it really does an injustice to all the work that's been done by generations of Americans who, who are recent to this country. Uh, and so I'm hoping that tenor changes because we need it to. We need a strong and vibrant Republican Party. And we need people to know that there are leaders of all stripes that can win elections and lead us because I'm not saying the Democrats have a lock on all the great ideas, but we need a Republican Party that wants to unite, not divide. Yeah, see, now you're, you're being pretty considered and reasonably careful and polite, <laughs> but the, the adjectives I was thinking more of were kind of more like batshit crazy. But <laughs> you don't want to go there, I think, huh? I, I don't want to go down their path. Uh, I think it's important to let them know that I find it offensive. I object to some of what they said. But at the same time, they're my brothers and sisters. Uh, they're part of my family. And I have to work with them and live with them. And I don't want them to feel like I've cast them aside because one of these days we're going to find ourselves in the same foxhole. And we better be ready to protect each other. What do you say when, when someone says, you know, Hillary Clinton for prison? Lock her up. She's a killer. She's a liar. Uh, I, I think it's so demeans and diminishes our political debate and our democracy. Uh, it's fine to have an opinion and everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but we're not each entitled to our own facts. And when you start to portray the facts as, as you only see them and then use adjectives to describe people based on what you call your facts, that's when it gets offensive. That's when it goes beyond debate and uh, discussion. And that's when it becomes uh, rhetoric that's harmful to our democracy. I, you know, at the end of the day, I think most Americans will see through it. I don't think it's going to survive until November. I think the Republicans find, better find a, a different shtick because I don't think it's going to carry them to the White House. Mm -hmm. uh, they need a big shtick that's a little better than this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, let me tell you. it's um, Talk softly, perhaps, yeah, and carry yeah. a big shtick. I don't well, know. I think, <laughs> unfortunately, they can't do that one because Hillary Clinton yeah. is the one that knows how to talk, stop, talk softly and carry a big stick. Mm -hmm. uh, they they got to find their own shtick. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, usually there's a bump coming out of the convention for, for a newly nominated candidate. Did you see a bump or do you see a dip coming out of this one? 
I think they've hit some bumps along the road here. I don't think those are the kind of bumps they were looking for. Uh, you know, plagiarism, uh, Lucifer, uh, these outrageous claims of lying, uh, the use of really offensive language. Uh, I don't see how they expect that to give them a tick up in the polls. But, you know, they still have two days to redeem themselves. Maybe they will. I, as I said, I, I really do hope they do. I, I'm not so much that they'll win an election, but I do hope that people will be able to say, oh, OK, I see the difference between the parties. I'll make a sound choice now based on what I know substantively. Uh, right now, it's a bit of a circus. And at the end of the day, I think Donald Trump is solidifying this impression that he's not fit to be the uh, commander in chief or president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, I got you to call it a circus, or at least a bit of a circus, <laughs> yeah. and I really was struck on the first day in particular, and a little bit yesterday, by uh, the dark tone. I mean, yeah. I don't remember, I remember Mitt Romney's, right? They went, they were trying to recapture Morning in America, Ronald Reagan. You hear Ronald Reagan up there, like practically every speech, but it's not morning, it's really dark. I mean... You think, think about it, mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan might not want to show up to this convention. Certainly... His successor, George Bush Sr., chose not to, uh, to show up. Uh, his son, George Bush Jr., decided not to show up. Mitt Romney decided not to show up. John McCain decided not to show up. The only Republican who has served as president or as the Republican nominee for president who showed up was Bob Dole. Bob Dole yeah. I, I think that's a statement in and of itself that this convention, the Trump convention, could not attract the standard bearers of the last 30 years uh, for Republicans. But you know what? This is their bed. They made it. They're sleeping with some strange bedfellows. But that's that's their choice. Yeah, well, you know, I went to a uh, John Kasich event yesterday. <laughs> and John Kasich isn't coming to this convention. He's around. He's doing stuff. But he gave an entire speech that talked about how the Brexit was bad, how it's crazy to want to leave NATO, how we need to embrace immigrants because they make the country better, um, how we need to have trade, how we need to embrace the international community. It's, it was almost, I mean, it was a point-by-point breakdown of Mr. Trump's platform, practically. And it was very intentional. He was polite, but it was very intentional. Like, like Do you think having that backdrop well, even, even beyond the dark tone that you see on TV, do you think that sort of mood will carry through to the public? Well, first, uh, it is stunning that the governor of the state where a convention is being held, who happens to be of the same party as the convention, Republican Governor John Kasich, has chosen not to show up in one of his big cities where this major convention is being held. Um, that speaks volumes. But if you didn't know how to interpret that, as you just said, John Kasich gave a speech where he essentially said, let me spell it out for you if, if, I, if it didn't make it clear by not accepting an invitation or not even welcoming in person those who came. Uh, right now, the Republican Party is in the midst of a civil war, uh, party civil war. Where it ends up, we'll find out. Uh, I hope that those like Governor Kasich and others who want to take a proud party in a direction that lets it fight for the values that it stood for prevails because otherwise we're going to have a party that's going to find itself shrinking because it's become very divisive, very exclusive, and it's uh, more and more, especially with young folks, sending a signal that 
Young folks need not apply. All right, we're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm in Cleveland's Public Square, which has been protest central during the week of the Republican National Convention. But there haven't really been that many protests. There hasn't been the violence that a lot of people imagined would happen. But one thing that there has been instead is a whole hell of a lot of Hillary for Prison t-shirts. And I think these will be one of the lasting images of the 2016 RNC, and I'm joined right now by two people who are uh, wearing Hillary for Prison t-shirts, or at least one of them is, but they are uh, a couple, and uh, this is Alex Carr and Louise Ferreira, who traveled to the RNC from Brooklyn, New York. Say hello. Uh, Hi, everybody. Hello, everyone. And so, Alex, Hillary for Prison, what does it mean? Well, basically, it is to the reason I wear it is to provoke a reaction from people in a nutshell and to start a conversation because it confuses people I say what do you mean by that yeah and so the reason I wear this is because I believe she has committed federal felonies numerous felonies yeah and I think she should stand trial now I don't think off the bat you know we should just throw her in prison she should get a fair trial have a baby grand jury look at it and if you know i'm sure she will be indicted and after that proceed with a trial and have her have lawyers just like i or you would so Infowars, i mean people know it for 9-11 tell me what you think about what happened on 9-11 that's different from the accepted story that terrorists flew planes into the twin towers and that's why they went down well, I mean, there are so many theories, and he has several. He has had over the years had many guests over, um, and no one really on the Jones show. No one really doubts the fact that planes were actually flown into them, and terrorists were involved. In nobody says those was it nineteen hijackers or seventeen, whatever. No one, nobody questions that fact. What is questioned often is how the buildings came down. Uh, for example, the Twin Towers, uh, he had several guests going over the design of them. They were called, they were designed by Pentagon. They were called, uh, uh, I think, Sky Fortresses. They were intended to withstand missile attacks. So something's fishy about yeah. how they so went down. Alex Jones never claimed really that I can think of how they came down or he knows what happened. He just says, we need... We, we're not getting all the answers. Right. Now, but this is wildly controversial, and, and in the mainstream, nobody in the accepts mainstream, this at yeah, all. They, because it's sort of like, they, people right. don't know what to do with it. What, well, which brings us to Donald Trump, the uh-huh. candidate people don't know what to do with, uh, sure. uh, who has been a guest on Alex Jones, uh, uh, Alex and Louise. Tell me a little about why you like Donald Trump. Um... Well, I don't know. I mean, I like him because he's a... From, like, past things that he has done, my main wish that he will accomplish, and I think he will do this, is to clean up Washington and go after the mishandling of funds in various bureaucracies, whether it's the military, 
with $200 toilet papers and $80 hammers, stuff like that, or whether it's different agencies where they misappropriate funds, things are not done the right way. We, we know bare minimum the government wastes about 30 cents on the dollar. So that's what I hope he'll go after. Yeah, but That's then, my but main thing. That does like your him. belief that, for instance, the government hasn't answered questions about what might have happened in the 9-11 terrorist attack, uh, does, does Donald Trump kind of channel that, that kind of skepticism? Well, I think he's a smart guy and he taps into different things that might bring people towards him. Yeah. And one of the ways he did tap into the sort of the, the 9-11 question, the community that questions 9-11 is he, he, well, the, uh, well he's he not a truther, but he's a no. birther. Well, Hitler is the actual, the original birther. She was a birther in 20. Yeah, she was the one who said it, and then he just said, well, look, she's saying it, you know. So I think I he's know. a little bit more of a birther than Hillary was. But She the, said, she said, what did she say, Obama's a Christian, as far as I know? Uh, oh, that's, well, a lot Donald of people Donald Trump think flat that. out said Obama was not born in the United States, did he not? In, back in the day, yeah. Yeah. They said that's, you know, oh. the, that's what, I don't remember exactly, you know, what was the things that were said but yeah it was along those lines yeah but i just i think it's unfair if you if you bring that up you should also bring up hillary started it yeah and then he continued it so uh and he kept pushing it too he That's, pushed it a yeah. lot uh, as far as 9-11 i think how he tapped into that community was by publicizing the 28 pages of the congressional report uh-huh. which a lot of people mislabel it saying the 9-11 commission but it's, it's actually a separate congressional report that the Bush administration classified, and now it's unclassified. Now, Alex, and he, he pushed that, and that kind of got people riled up. They're like, "Yeah, he's he might actually be, you know." Now, Alex and Louise, you guys are both immigrants. You told me you, you came to the United States at a young age. Uh, Louise, tell me about uh, where you're from, and uh, and and what you think of Donald Trump's stance on immigration. Uh, I was uh, born in Honduras, but I'm actually a mixed child, Um, so I'm a quarter Chinese, Um, I'm Italian as well, and I'm also German. Um, Both my parents are mixed children as well, Um, and I came to the U.S. when I was uh, 11 years old. Um, I've been uh, living in Brooklyn ever since. you know, went to college, undergrad, and law school, um, both in the state of New York. And um, I like Donald Trump, um, not specifically him as a person. I think he, you know, we, we do go back and forth a lot um, in, in this you have matter. Mixed feelings. I, I do, I, uh-huh. I don't think he is by far the most ideal candidate, but having met um, Hillary, myself personally, and uh, interacted with her and just based on everything that I know of everything that she has done and quite frankly I'm not very happy with the Obama administration I have not been very happy as a taxpayer who I always complain about this uh, who gets taxed the maximum amount um, so you want change I and want you just kind of don't like Hillary I do not like Hillary and I, I think everything and there's just got to be so much cleaning up to do in Washington. I mean, there's so much going on in every department that it's like, when are we going to put a stop to it? 
Uh, now, do I think Donald Trump will specifically go ahead and do that? I don't know, but mm-hmm. I do hope that he does. Uh, I will not be voting for Hillary. That is that is for sure. Oh, oh, and what about you, Alex? Where are you from? Uh, I'm much more boring. <laughs> I'm, well, I know you can't. I'm you, from you, Armenia. I was born yeah. there. Um, but, uh, and uh, I came to the United States when I was 13. Um, we went through the legal process just like Luisa did. We applied for a, a political asylum. Uh, and it was granted in the San Francisco court. That is a funny story of its own. Now, Donald Trump has got harshly anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric, but see, you agree with his positions on this? Be- I, I think that's unfair. Okay. I think it's unfair to say he is harshly anti-immigrant. He has anti-illegal alien rhetoric. And I know it's not correct to say, you know, it's more, you know, what, what is the accepted term? Uh, undocumented immigrants, right? Yes. But I don't think that's a correct term because they don't come through the legal process. See, like, my family spent thousands of dollars yeah. that we didn't have. Me and my father worked in horrible jobs when I was a teenager, you know, just to pay the $3,000 to a lawyer and then this and then that. And it was about 10-year process. For me, it was almost 13 years. I finally became a citizen. And during that process, you're always afraid you know, uh, just a simple thing. You're you're taking a road trip in the middle of the freeway. You have to go. If you if you go on the side of the freeway, you get public, you know, urination ticket. That's it. You can't become a citizen. Yeah. You know, so like little things. You know, you stumble on something. I think it like reckless driving ticket. You can't become a citizen. So you always have those 10, 11, 12 years. You're always it's a it's a process. And I. And it's unfair to us to be compared to undocumented aliens as they're immigrants too because they don't go through that. I used to work in a factory for two years making shutters, wooden shutters, and about 80% was illegal immigrants. Yeah. In the beginning, when like 10 years ago, ICE would come in, everybody would scatter, they would catch whoever they catch, they would deport people, and then a week later they were back at work. It was like easy for them, but... So they, they live in a different world. Now, my heart goes out for them. Yeah. I have relatives myself from Armenia who are illegally here. And you know what? If, if we start the deportation process, they're going to be deported. At least with Donald Trump versus more radical Republicans, he wants to bring them back. He says, let's deport them and then bring them back legally. Give them priority over other immigrants. Let them come through the wall. Well, not through the wall, through the door. Through the door and the wall. wall, Okay. Uh, Metaphorically speaking, I mean, the Armenians would fly, right? We we don't have (laughs) that. We don't have the privilege of the border. All right, Alex Carr and Luisa Ferreira. Sorry for calling you Louise earlier. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you guys. Thank you for having us. We're back, joined by Zach Carter. Hello, everyone. And joining us now is Laura Barone Lopez. Hey. And uh, next week is the Democratic Convention. And one of the big things that we'll know sometime between now and the next time we talk to you on the podcast is who uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is choosing as her vice president. And 
it's been kind of at sixes and sevens who who might end up uh, <laughs> as her pick for a long time. We were talking about how Elizabeth Warren might be the be the nominee. We've talked about Tom Perez. Um, we've kind of like moved to the more uh, wider side of, of, <laughs> of the boring of, uh, side of the debate. Yes, we're, it, it seems it seems that it seems if the if our if the media is any guide, Clinton has now moved to sort of choosing between ecru and eggshell mm-hmm. uh, with Tim Kaine and for some reason Tom Vilsack. <laughs> if you if 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 words like Tim Kaine and Tom Vilsack make you go who? You are not the only one. It is only yeah. people who have been following politics for like 30 years very closely who know who these people are. Yeah. I imagine that like, I don't know, maybe millennials are snapping up Tom Vilsack. Oh, they love Tom Vilsack. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> His school lunch program is been t- extremely popular. Yes. He's the secretary of agriculture. Yeah, and former I- <laughs> Iowa governor. And Tim Kaine is a former senator. governor of Virginia and current senator of Virginia. Mm-hmm. So uh, they both are charming people who seem like seem like nice fellows. We've had Tom Vilsack on the show before, but they are just both dreadfully boring. I mean, dreadfully, dreadfully boring. They are. It is (laughs) unbelievable how dull these people are. There are many times that I have to write about Kane. There's not many times I have to say, Senator, can you talk about this issue? Because he just doesn't get as involved. Yeah. And one of the things that's been interesting. Maybe that's the selling point for him. Well, I I think that's what I think that's what's happening here is that Hillary Clinton has has sort of made up. I mean, this this decision, more than anything else, I think it's going to be a guide to how she is how she wants to govern. Um, You know, she's been kind of all over the place on different issues at different times in her in her career. You know, she picks somebody who's a strong progressive, even if it's not Elizabeth Warren, it at least signals, you know, I saw that whole Bernie Sanders thing. Mm-hmm. I'm taking that wing of the party seriously. Those concerns are going to be part of my of my priorities. Um, if she picks just a boring person who nobody is enthusiastic about, <laughs> then she's saying, hey, that Bernie Sanders thing happened and I won and I'm going to do what I want. And you progressives... And I also, don't really care. <laughs> and also, like, someone like Elizabeth Warren, who is only, you know, pr- increasingly becoming, ha- like, have a bigger presence on the national stage, I feel like she may overshadow Clinton to a certain degree. There's I'm sure she's worried about that. And yeah. so that, yeah, you, you don't want your VP overshadowing overshadowing you. So someone like Kane or Vilsack um, wouldn't. But the, there are electoral benefits from an Elizabeth Warren ticket, I think. If you put Elizabeth Warren on the ticket, there she does have a, a national constituency. Mm-hmm. There are people who will come out and vote who would not otherwise come out yeah, and vote if, if they're there. So she she does make, I think, material electoral gains. If she if she doesn't, if she rejects that, then she's just basically saying, you know what? I pretty much got this thing locked up. I don't need the help. I have to say that like a lot of when we talk about like who would make a good vice president, a lot of what we have to say Let's let's be honest. They're predicated on some sort of shallow assumptions about a wider group of people out there in the country that maybe we haven't met. Mm-hmm. But it is sort of puzzling to to be at this point watching Clinton potentially pick Tom Vilsack or Tim Tim Kaine to be vice president because when you consider the kind of areas in which she has a deficit, there it is. It is uh, it is establishment. It is a lack of youth, a lack of maybe energy, mm-hmm. and uh, and a certain mm-hmm. amount of I don't know what the word for it is, um, but some some means of tapping into an energy that's beyond what she's able to manifest yeah. itself, and a, and a reflection that there is a whole different world of politics out there now that she is trying to emerge into from a very very well known past. 
And I don't know if you'd get there with Tim Kaine. And I don't no, know if you'd Tim get there Kane with Tom is, Kilsack. You know, he's, you go to him for foreign policy, and she's already strong on that, right? So, right. like you said, there there aren't many areas that he, uh, an older white man, <laughs> white senator from Virginia, will tap into that she isn't already tapped into. Um, same with Vilsack. So, yes, Elizabeth Warren would definitely bring people over that wouldn't necessarily go with her. Um but I'm not sure who else is out there that she can she can go to, right? I mean, I, th- I think it's 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 basically a signaling game if she doesn't pick Warren, right? About about how much she cares about essentially Sanders voters and how much she thinks she needs them. Because well, even if you pick like Jeff Merkley and 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 Sherrod Brown, who are two senators who are mm-hmm. often allied with Elizabeth Warren, um, they're not people who are going to energize a very large progressive base either. They don't have a real national stature. But for progressive insiders and people who watch and follow party politics very closely, they can see, oh, well, she did pick these boring white guys, but these are the boring white guys who people like me like. They're not the boring (laughs) white guys who annoy people like me. Like, you know, Tim Kaine just this week um, signed a couple of letters calling for, you know, bank deregulation. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the most catastrophic deregulatory ideas ever, but it's clearly someone who is just not aligned with with the Bernie Sanders sort of movement on on key issues. I'm going to throw another name out there, actually. Uh, Representative Javier Becerra, because he's someone that House Democrats are actually pushing quite a bit. Um, towards Clinton and he's definitely had talks with her and he's out there and he's campaigning for her and he does bring um, you know the his, uh, the Hispanic vote along with him if she were to she it's were to interesting that the Casper brothers have sort of dropped out <laughs> of the conversation out. yeah um, they, they were discussed six months ago as potential <laughs> you know oh, there was and a even years ago like uh, when they shoe in if mm-hmm. you asked me a year ago they've been the first people I have a name exactly I and would even said I can't I, you know, they're 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 so identical twins that you could probably get a two for one deal. <laughs> like they could probably be in two places at once. You'd be amazed. They'd be like, "How are they doing it? How's the vice president doing it? Ah, trick! There are two of them." Um. <laughs> <laughs> but now they're basically off the radar. Yeah, yeah it seems like. Yeah, and I find that I find that a bit puzzling, and I find it puzzling to the extent that it would be weird to work your way back to Javier Becerra because for them to be off the radar suggests that the campaign is like we've got the we've got the Hispanic vote locked up. We don't need to we don't need to do anything more uh, to it. But maybe they really want to put the hammer down. Maybe they're looking at some of these polls where they see African Americans so. going zero for Trump. And, and I don't know if I would say that the Castro brothers are as strong as Javier Becerra when it comes to uh, engaging Latinos. So I think that, especially lately, I mean, in the past few months, he's been out there for her, and he seems to be, um, you know, he he warms up crowds very well, and I think that there's an element to him that, you know, would bring something to the ticket if she decided to go with him. It's interesting, too, because there are states... She does have the Latino vote. I mean, she's doing much better with Latinos than Donald Trump is, for yeah. instance. But polls are very close in in uh, Florida, for instance, mm-hmm. just a state where there is a significant Latino vote. And she's going, you know, if if the, the, there are very few ways that Clinton can end up losing the election in the Electoral College. But one of the one of the few paths there is to lose Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, there's 27 electoral votes at stake. Uh, you know, there 
you could actually end up winning 60 percent of the vote, you know, and yeah. still losing the uh, the election if you lose like Florida, Wisconsin and Minnesota, for instance. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, definitely. So it is it is worth talking about about the Latino vote. Mm-hmm. Get, getting to 95 from 90 is is As, a meaningful thing. Yeah, and- I feel like I have to stand for some political scientists and say that there's no way a 65 percent uh, popular vote win loses you Florida. <laughs> It's tough. It's pretty tough. <laughs> Just so, I understand what you're saying. That, that number may have been too big. It's theoretical. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but I mean, Florida is totally uh, in play, especially with the Puerto Rican vote. You know, so many have uh, moved over from from the island given the, the debt crisis. And so there's, you know, they now rival the Cuban vote when it comes to Hispanics in the state. And they tend to lean more Democratic than Cubans. So... That's something that Democrats are paying attention to. All right. Well, obviously, by the by, perhaps by the time you actually hear this podcast, this will be a settled matter. And so, congratulations, yeah. Tom Vilsack. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we put our marker down. Uh, feel free to send us emails making fun of us. Uh, um, and remember that really, all that really matters in the vice presidential stakes is that the guy be or woman be vetted within an inch of their lives, because that's literally yes. all that really matters. All right, um, Zach, Laura, thank you for thank you. talking about something that we can't talk about because we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that, listeners. Yeah, enjoy. Uh, we'll be right back. And we are back. So by the time our podcast left our hands and went into yours last week, a few hours later, everything went to hell in Turkey. There was an attempted military coup. Uh, hundreds of people died. About 2,000 more were injured. There were reprisal killings after the fact. Pitched battles in Turkey's two major cities. Uh, and in the end, uh, the coup was put down. And now Turkey's President Erdogan has basically declared a very draconian set of security circumstances for himself. It is uh, a dangerous and weird situation. And here to talk about it uh, is uh, Zach Carter. Hello, everyone. And Akbar Ahmed. Hi, Pakistani and not Turkish. Pakistani, Just for the not Turkish. <laughs> um, I wanted to, st- I wanted to just sort of get set the stage because I think a lot of people um, probably just aren't familiar with sure. uh, what's going, what's been going on in Turkey over the past, you know, decade, and the extent to which Turkey's always been kind of like the loose Jenga brick in a lot of international entanglements, not the least of which is uh, current war on ISIS. Right. Um, so really quick setting the stage, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, elected 2002, thought as it's thought to be this great democratic hope, uh, engaged a lot of people in the Turkish political process who'd never been engaged before, rural voters, more conservative people, has become over the years much more kind of concerned with his own stability and his own position in the country rather than the rest of the country, very much clamping down on the press, clamping down on dissidents, critics, and his involvement in Syria which you mentioned is a big part of why the, the military did this. Uh, they're very unhappy with what he's doing in Syria. Erdogan, yeah. And so what is he doing in Syria? So he, uh, since the, the Arab Spring in 2011, uh, President Erdogan saw this as his moment. He's someone who has been kind of a, 
democratic, to some extent, Islamist for a long time, right? And has seen military rulers or autocrats like Bashar Assad of Syria put down people of his ilk across the region. So this moment happened. Erdogan was like, this is great. I'm going to support Islamists in Egypt, in Syria, all over who are suddenly rising and maybe getting power. For the last five years, he's been trying to support folks in Syria who are trying to defeat Assad, the president, hasn't been successful, and the military sees this as a costly, unnecessary adventure, they would much rather focus on Turkey's own problems with its Kurdish minority. So that's a kind of point of discord between him and the army. He's, he's really just, I mean, I think to put it bluntly, he's, he's just looked, moved in an authoritarian direction very quickly in yeah. the last few years, um, which was not something that people, uh, was not unexpected to a lot of people. There's always been this tension between um, sort of a more secular Western-oriented uh, part of Turkish society and this uh, you know, sort of Islamist side of Turkish society. And one of the reasons that he's popular, is, as, you, as you mentioned, Akbar, is that he's able, he relies very heavily on conservative rural voters. Um, they, there is a big cultural clash in Turkey between those voters and the people from from the big who live in the big city. Or more cosmopolitan. Yes, I mean Istanbul is is a you know it's it's like it's like London except it's on the Bosphorus. Uh, it's 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 like Paris that that type of of Western city. Um, but what one of the things that's interesting about the coup, the failed coup attempt, uh, is that you didn't even though there is this this sort of cultural tension and unrest about Erdogan. Uh, you didn't see the coup getting any political support from anyone. Right. Even the Kurds, who right. who Erdogan is you know, killing <laughs> all the time, didn't support right. didn't support removing him from power with the military coup. Um, and I do, I think as a result of its failure, now you see that that sort of authoritarian impulse that he has been moving uh, moving with uh, really accelerated. Um, and I think a useful way to think about it is that think about the folks who might have supported the school, who have been, um, <clears throat> sorry, targets of Erdogan's increasing viciousness towards his critics, right? So it's secular Turks represented by the main opposition party. It's the Kurdish, majority Kurdish party in parliament. And all those people decide we would rather have an illiberal democracy than a military government. Because we also have to remember Turkey has, for a lot of its uh, existence, been ruled by the military. And it hasn't been a great place to live particularly for Kurds, particularly for intellectuals, particularly for anyone who wants a democratic process. So Erdogan, for all his authoritarian tendencies, wins elections. You know, he might stage political events or or shape circumstances like launching a civil war last year to really raise the specter of a Kurdish um, threat to Turkey. But he he does that because he needs to get people scared so that they'll come to the polls. How does this complicate? How does this complicate our the United States relationship with uh, Turkey? I understand that. I understand that uh, the person who's who Erdogan has sort of fingered for yeah. launching this coup is a, an exiled uh, Turk who lives in Pennsylvania, yeah. who's denied any involvement with the coup. Uh, but the Obama administration is following up on an investigation and says they will extradite this man if they find evidence that he yeah. did foment this coup. In its really weird at the same time when they're sort of nominally opposing the rise of authoritarian here in our politics right. to be supporting Erdogan in this regard uh, in Turkey. I would say they're not supporting Erdogan that much. Um, the president didn't issue a statement until three hours after the coup attempt. It was clear it failed. So you think he's soft-footing it? Yeah, and I think based on my conversations, I don't know if you guys have heard differently, but with administration folks over the last two years, particularly since the ISIS fight began, August 2014, the frustration with Erdogan has reached such a high 
I think people in the administration are like, honestly, I don't care. I don't want to deal with you. I sort of wish the coup had been successful. And, and you talk to, it's interesting, this is not just a civilian view. I have military sources who literally two weeks before this happened were telling me, can't deal with the Turkish military anymore, can't deal with the Turkey's leaders. And that's scary, frankly. This is a NATO ally. This is not a country that's going anywhere. It's very important, very well armed. And if you kind of back them into a corner and they decide we have to lash out, that's not great for the Caucasus, for the Middle East. And, and yet, he, uh, under, under Erdogan's rule, they have been an extremely difficult yeah. ally, uh, particularly against ISIS. I mean, in a lot of yeah. ways, uh, aligning with people uh, and focusing on, on other types of fights, which have effectively empowered ISIS. Um, and yeah. it, it took forever for the United States to start being able to use an airbase to, to go after ISIS from Turkey. It's pretty essential that the United States be able to use that, and Erdogan's just been difficult with that for, for years now. And that's um, kind of what the Obama administration, though, can go back and see, right? And this is the interesting thing, is they didn't have access to that airbase until last year. They chalked up a lot of successes to create Kobani against ISIS without the airbase. They, they can go back to the Turks and say, look, you want to be difficult? We don't need you that much. Um, and other allies in the region include, for instance, um, the Kurdish minority that, uh, that is at war right now with, yeah. um, with, with Erdogan's government, effectively, uh, who are some of the most effective fighters against ISIS uh, anywhere in the Middle East. In the wake of the coup, there's been an enormous effort undertaken by Erdogan to essentially purge his government um, right. of people he suspects of having uh, aided and abetted this. And it's extraordinary how deep he's going with this purge. We're talking about not just not just military officials, not just police, but we're talking about uh, he's he's pressuring university professors into resigning. He's he's banned them academics from traveling abroad. Yeah, he's he's going after school teachers, really low level municipal civil servants. There's going to be like a real scar on this country uh, that is now almost irreversible, right? That's fair. Um, it is a deeply scarred country. This is something that, that's worth remembering. You know, Turkey has seen these periods of autocracy, and, and to the Turkish people's credit, they come out of it every time. But this is a country where people were banned from expressing, you know, their religious identity. You couldn't wear the headscarf, and you still can't in most places, right? Where women had major restrictions on what they could and couldn't do, and the government censored everything. I think the Turkish people, the, the, what you were kind of mentioning is actually opposition to the coup, I think the choice the Turkish people made is really interesting because they knew that something like this would happen, mm -hmm. and they still chose to oppose a military coup. That is really fascinating. I can't... So I have to shift. I want to shift really briefly. Yeah. I, I feel like I can't let you guys go without bringing this up. So we're moving now back to 2016. Um, big news last <laughs> night. Um, David Sanger and Maggie Haberman interviewed Donald Trump on a number of foreign policy issues. And uh, his responses to their questions have really sort of set teeth on edge throughout the foreign policy community. And we're talking spanning the spectrum. Um, probably the keynote thing he talked about in this uh, was the fact that he would be hesitant to assist the Baltic states in the event of a Russian invasion unless those states had properly um, yeah. honored the um, United States with tribute, basically. <laughs> um, there's, I, there's, there's an argument to be made that there are some sort of like old and very stodgy institutions, like NATO, yeah, that by no means flawless, yeah. But 
this is a kind of really perilous moment to my mind. The fact that the fact that once again it's the kind of like swimming up of this sort of like weird pro Putin rhetoric from the yeah. Trump camp. Uh, and a lot of what he had to say, frankly, in that interview could have been stripped from an editorial diktat from Russia Today. I think you mean an op-edge, because Russia Today <laughs> is edgy, and therefore everything is an op-edge. Right, an sure. Op-edge. Sorry about that, Russia Today. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I think that the really even more perilous thing is, frankly, speaking as someone who deals with D.C.'s foreign policy community, no one cares if their teeth are on edge. No one cares if people at Carnegie and the Atlantic Council are like, this is horrifying. Um, and that's interesting because I think a lot of regular people are probably like, yeah, I don't care about Baltics. Are you kidding? And Muslim majority Turkey, you want me to defend them? Is Are you nuts? So I, I actually think that's a bit of a populist view. And unless people are able to elucidate a reason why the American people should care about these alliances and, and counter the Putin propaganda, the idea that NATO is just a warmongers alliance, the idea that Europe freeloads. Those ideas are very popular, um, and, and we don't see pushback. We see Hillary Clinton instead trying to be Reagan 2.0, which is not helpful because people think she's a warmonger. I realize I'm just going to now say something out loud <laughs> that people have only been whispering about, but is there a straight line from the Putin propaganda shop to Paul Manafort? <laughs> I haven't done the reporting. I don't know, but it sure sounds pretty weird when he talks about foreign policy, doesn't it? It really, it really, sounds, it really sounds very, very strange and... Uh, I think it's a worldview, though. I, I sort of think it's filtered into the general discourse. Um, and there's some direct tra- links. I mean, there's Paul Manafort. There's obviously Carter Page, his right. Trump's foreign policy advisor, gave a speech in Moscow, which basically was what Putin's UN speech was last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's very strange. Weird, weird world going on. Yes. And there's going to be a lot to sort out between now and Election Day and obviously abroad beyond Election Day. All right. Thank you, Akbar, for joining us. Zach, thank you. And we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta with a big assist from Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by California representatives Javier Becerra, as well as Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Laura Barone-Lopez, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Mike McAuliffe. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. And we'll see you in Philadelphia. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 